Welcome to Healthcare Happenings, a One Digital Employer Advisory Podcast. It's no secret that healthcare is complicated, and to prepare for the road ahead, business leaders need transparency and access to information in order to develop the best health benefit strategy. Our team of compliance leaders are here to shed light on the latest developments on the Hill and share their collective vision for ways to improve the healthcare experience. Welcome. I'm your host, Annette Bechtold. I'm the Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Compliance here at One Digital. And I have this great privilege of being the host of this amazing healthcare happening session. Um, I think my favorite part of being in the healthcare industry over this, this past 35 years has really been um, that it never, never ceases to stop changing. I think it keeps us on our toes, but I think this constant strive for something better, for helping people is, is what we're all here for. And um, in, in an effort to do that, we wanna bring you the most uh, pressing topics, how people can help, what we're doing to change things. And I think that it's important that we keep striving toward you know better tomorrows for, for everyone involved. So right now I want you to meet the rest of our Healthcare Happenings team. Hi, I'm Samantha Molliver. I'm the Managing Director of Compliance Consulting. Uh, my role here at One Digital is I lead the compliance consulting services um, on a corporate level, national corporate level. So I partner with our benefit advisors, all of our clients, employers to help educate and help develop practical compliance solutions related to their employee benefit plans. Hi, my name is Scott Wham. I'm Director of Compliance and Innovation for One Digital's Northeastern Operations, the based out of Philadelphia. Uh, I work with hundreds and hundreds of employers to help them stay on the on the right path when it comes to compliance. Um, but I'm also really interested in health policy generally, the future of healthcare innovation, and how employers can adopt uh, uh, new solutions and novel solutions that really deliver exciting results to their organization. Um, if one thing comes through in this conversation, it's I hope you can tell that I love this topic and I'm obsessed with healthcare. So I'm really looking forward to this. Awesome. Thanks. You got, it's great. It's great to have you. Um, we'll be doing these regularly. So it'll, you'll get to know and love all of our personalities as we as we move forward. Today's topic, what we really want to share is our recent visit to the Hill, our discussions with um, the congressman about what the most pressing topics are. And I think one of the big pieces is we have a brand new Congress, 117th Congress. Every time Congress changes, which is every two years, we've got lots of new people, we've got lots of education, and lots of figuring out where people stand, what we can do, and what things can be accomplished. So the organization that we all belong to that um, is pretty premier in the industry is the National Association of Health Underwriters. They're a lobbying association that represents legislative and regulatory interests of over 100,000 licensed health and welfare benefits professionals and the consumers they serve. So that includes individuals, it includes people on Medicare, it includes employer groups, sponsored groups. Um, over 700 benefits specialists kind of descended on Capitol Hill in 2020 to share our collective vision for ways to improve uh, the healthcare experience. And in this past year, we've done it, we did it virtually. And so this is what's been a, an amazing um, piece this year. So 
we call it Capital Conference. It's an annual event. Scott, tell us more about, can you explain more about what we do at Capital Conference and how this works, and especially virtually this year? Yeah, sure. So so Capital Conference is a, an incredible lobbying event that, that draws upwards of a thousand individuals from across the country who have expertise in health and welfare benefit plans, uh, as well as other consumer insurance markets, whether it's Medicare or the individual market. But the vast majority of of members spend most of their time with employer groups uh, like yourselves who are tuning in here. And it's a chance for all of us to go uh, meet with our representatives and senators from our respective states uh, to tell our story and and to to, uh, present ourselves really as a resource uh, to lawmakers who are mulling really complex issues that, that pertain to health policy that really impact you, the employer, the employees, and your families. Um, our main objective is to work in a bipartisan fashion and hold us hold ourselves out as nonpartisan experts in 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 uh, matters that impact our industry, and really to work with anyone who's willing to listen. Um, it's a great opportunity to put faces to names and to really establish our credibility with lawmakers. And right now, you know, uh, this was our first virtual conference, uh, obviously as a result of the pandemic, but it was a way to really put our best foot forward. And even though things were done virtually, to really start to establish those relationships with the new Congress um, as they consider really big health policy proposals and really big uh, topics that are impacting all of us right now. So, yeah, I like to think of it as our one time of the year where we're kind of organized and we actually get to go and talk to the people that are elected to hold these positions in office. So this year, 2021, we did it virtually. So everybody, I'm sure you're well aware of Zoom. So that was fun, making sure that everybody was not muted and that their cameras were on. It was a a real interesting time this year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Did did anyone turn into a cat? Did anyone (laughs) have their cat filter on this year? (laughs) I'm not a cat, Your Honor, I swear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, you know, uh, no, you know what, it was sort of more relaxed, I felt, than um, in prior years, you're, you know, you sit and and you're you're in their office with them, which is really great, but I felt like it was even more relaxed. I had some of the congressmen, they were eating sandwiches while they're talking to us, so you're kind of breaking bread together, and it was kind of a nice, I don't know if you guys had that experience, too, in the meetings that you got. Yeah, I found like we were able to actually meet with the representative or the congressman or the congresswoman. Previously, often they're so busy that you're meeting with their aides. Um, So this time we were actually able to meet directly with them. So it was much easier to have that more face-to-face conversation than actually being in person. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's a little counterintuitive, but I I think our reach on Congress was probably the greatest it's ever been because you know, we are a national association. We have agents from the peninsula, uh, from the islands of Alaska, uh, who, who oftentimes are, are having a, have a little difficulty flying into D.C. for yeah. a Capitol Hill event. But I'll, I, I got to be honest, I'm always shocked at how many people show up from Alaska. It's actually incredible. Um, yeah, because we're but, meeting in Washington, D.C., so it's not, you know. <laughs> yeah, but we removed that barrier this year. And, uh, and we actually had our largest attendance at our virtual conference that we've had, at least the as long as I've been a member of the association going on 10 years. Um, so wildly successful, but interesting virtual experience nonetheless. <laughs> uh, exactly. And and to Sam's point, we, you know, it is this one time where we can have a, make a concerted effort to really talk about what are the, what are the handful of things that we think can have some traction to help 
consumers, to help people utilize healthcare, to drive down some costs? What are things that everyone can agree on and some simple measures that can be taken? Um, some things take forever to do and, and are going to take literally an act of Congress to happen. But what are some of the smaller steps that can be made that could provide a lot of relief? So there's a, a, a few different areas that we had, we made this concerted effort to speak on, and I want to kind of cover those today. So, you know, COVID-19 has had a big impact. Um, obviously, it's had a huge impact on employers uh, in many different ways. So there are some particular things that we uh, spoke about with regard to some relief for employers. And um, the first topic kind of under this um piece that kind of bridges a few different topics, but it's employer reporting. So we know under the Affordable Care Act, the applicable large employers, applicable large uh, applicable large employer members, so they could be small groups, but part of a larger controlled group of corporations, all have this responsibility to report. It's been expensive, it's been time consuming, it's been confusing, and people have been getting penalties from the IRS for non-compliance. So there's all this heavy lift on employers. And so there's a few very particular things that we've been sensitive to, right, with the um, with the pandemic. So um, do you guys kind of want to bridge some of those uh, topics of, you know, how has this affected the employers, COVID-19 and reporting? Like, where do those intersect? So, yeah, I'm sure many of you of our listeners are aware, well aware of how the impact the pandemic has had, especially on kind of just employer reporting. So when we talked to our Congress people, we talked about hopefully doing some suspension on any of the penalties that may may have come out from 2020 reporting, or maybe putting a delay, um, or offering some type of relief, especially from an employer standpoint, if they had employees that went out on furlough, um, layoffs, or just a reduction in hours, they may not be equipped for knowing how to accurately code these individuals. And then also from an affordability standpoint, reduction in wages, um, loss of pay. So they may no longer meet that affordability. So really we're looking for some type of relief for our employers so that they're not penalized when they're trying to do the best that they could with what they were dealt with during the pandemic. Yeah, you know, that's a, we have an administration shift where, you know, the previous administration um, took as lax an attitude toward enforcement as statutorily possible. Um, what I mean by that is, is you know, when you're, when you're in the executive branch of government, your freedom to enforce laws is, is limited to a certain extent by what's required by statute. But within the, within the statutory framework, the Trump administration was relatively lax in enforcing, which wasn't really that lax. Um, many of my clients still received outreach uh, inquiring as to whether they potentially owed penalties. Um, still, many of my clients were receiving outreach regarding uh, inquiries as to whether they were actually applicable large employers who should have filed. Um, but now we have an administration who is truly an advocate of the Affordable Care Act, where compliance with the Affordable Care Act is expected, um, where we would expect to see a, a more stringent enforcement of the law. But right now, um, gosh almighty, the, the, the year that many of our clients have had in, in, in trying to keep their heads above water and really trying to keep things moving the, the, the right direction, if there was ever a time for leniency with, um, with this reporting requirement, the time would be now. And I think that the, the reality is that the, at the, uh, on Capitol Hill, there's a lot of um, 
sympathy and empathy for that position. I mean, there's a, there, there's a lot of uh, sympathetic ears who are willing to hear that message right now. And, 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 and uh, most of the conversations I had in a bipartisan fashion were relatively receptive to that, to that conversation. Yeah. And you'd, you'd think that even though it is a different administration, but last year we did have quite a bit of relief associated with cafeteria plan elections, mid-year election changes, also for providing notices. A lot of it went to kind of a good faith effort to try to comply that this isn't that far off to ask for the similar type of relief related to ACA reporting. Yeah, I think uh, those are all really good points. And Scott, coming back to what you were saying about enforcement coming forward, I think you're right. I think the Biden administration is going to enforce much more heartily the ACA and make all the all the components and functions work um, as they were intended, which includes consequences and includes gaining uh, access to revenue based on non-compliance, you know? So I do think they'll be more strict, but yeah, it makes so much sense right now to say, look, you gave so many other, Sam, to your point, gave so many other passes for employers in so many other ways why aren't you doing it on the employer reporting? They don't even have codes. I don't know how to code it. I don't know how I had people on furlough. I don't know what I'm supposed to write that everybody's confused. And then to be assessing penalties right now seems pretty inappropriate. What's um, really important to say though, is that nothing changes until it changes. Right. So so nothing, nothing changes until it changes. So don't listen to this podcast and go home and crack open a bottle of champagne and say, Whoa, no reporting this year. Scott, yeah. Sam, and Annette told us we don't have to report. No, that's not well, I think the reporting still very much in play. That was the, you know, get out to your employees. March 2nd was the deadline. So, that's <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so those are some things we're asking for is a little, you know, some leniency, some safe harbors kind of for employers during this pandemic time. And it's for long, for as long as there is a pandemic. Um, so let's kind of jump over to some of the things, uh, some of our asks, if you will, for things we know that costs are expensive. Healthcare costs seems seem to continue to escalate. Um, not a surprise. What are some of the things that we're advocating for and some of the things that we asked and kind of your experiences around things that could either help stabilize costs, lower costs, et cetera? Well, I'll say one thing that um, I think we had kind of a lot of support was talking about fixing the family glitch, um, which I think, you know, kind of goes to, you know, we're all trying to get universal coverage and I think we're pretty close to being there Um, and fixing the family glitch would allow more people to be able to get those subsidies on the exchange, not having to be dependent on whether an employee in that family has access to affordable coverage. Yeah, that's a good uh, point, Sam. So the family glitch for our people who aren't familiar with the term, the family glitch applies to an ACA provision where employers are supposed to be offering employees affordable plans. Well, when the ACA was written, affordability was based on household income. So as long as you provided um, uh, something that was affordable based on somebody's household income, the certain percentage, um, then they were considered to have an offer of coverage that's affordable. It precludes them from getting a subsidy in the exchange. So it keeps them on the employer plan. The employer basically is paying an appropriate amount of subsidy, if you will. Um, when employers complained about the fact that they don't know how to set 
their contribution rates based on household income affordability because they can't ask somebody what their household income is. The rules that were written said, well, look, we're not going to penalize employers. We're only going to base affordability on the employee-only rate, which then allowed employers to continue to just offer a a contribution for employee only um, at a certain level, meaning affordability, but not at the dependent level. They could um, offer something less or not offer any contribution at all. Unfortunately, that does not count. I mean, it does not, uh, it counts from being, still being an affordable cover, uh, affordable offer, regardless of what the, uh, whether the employer contributes anything to the dependent. So what happens is the dependent employer's not helping them with their costs or very little cost, but they, if they can't go to the exchange and receive a subsidy because they've been given an affordable offer of coverage, affordability being measured only on the employee only rate. And so there's a whole bunch, there's this whole population of dependents that are really not either getting no help from the employer and can't get any help from the exchange um, or getting very little help from the employer and still getting no help from the exchange. So that's this family glitch. And, and we think that this also is why people are going uncovered, like they're not signing up for coverage at the employer, and then they're probably not signing up for coverage on the exchange either. So I know that in the congressman uh, that I spoke with, a lot of them were, were, had never thought about that as one of the reasons why people aren't signing up for coverage. I don't know if you guys ran into that. Yeah, I, I, I read an interesting article um, right before we did this session uh, last week uh, that was really uh, retrospective on 10 years of the ACA. Uh, looking back on 10 years of the ACA, the ACA was signed into law in 2010. The major provisions that impact um, most of our clients and their families came into effect between 2013 and 2014. Um, so so we've, we've got a decent data set of the success of the ACA and the failures of the ACA. And the overarching theme in this article that I read that I agree with 100% is that the major failure of the ACA was in communication. Um, these, what Annette just explained to the average employee who doesn't swim in the health insurance soup every day is a web of interaction that's pretty complicated. And the challenge that we often encounter is employers are not aware of this web of interaction and the employees not aware of this web of interaction. Employers, and those of you who are tuning into this podcast, have very real financial responsibilities. And especially if you're an ALE managing the employer shared responsibility provisions, you're trying to, you have a fiduciary responsibility to protect your company from paying uh, uh, non-strategic penalties. Um, non-strategic excise tax penalties. So what ended up happening was a lot of companies in order to avoid penalty liability were funding single coverage to an affordable rate. But to Annette's point, the the negative byproduct of just funding single coverage is that an employee's household is eliminated from from potential subsidy eligibility, even if the family coverage that the employer offers or dependent child coverage that the employer offers is unaffordable. Um, That that interaction has major implications for employee relations, has major implications for uh, access to affordable care for the household. And what I find with this issue 
is there isn't strong opposition, both on my client side, when I talk to an employer, they're not opposed to fixing this. And on Capitol Hill, I don't always encounter strong opposition to fixing this. Now, it does mean more spending. It will mean uh, more subsidies going out the door if you address this issue. But it seems to be one of those issues that was never really effectively communicated. It was never really um, it was never communicated at a level that the average healthcare consumer that's not an expert in health insurance or statute or statutory interpretation or reading regulations, which I, I pray none of you have to do in your in your daily lives. That's what um, I do. That's fine. Yeah, that, that's what we're here for. <laughs> the the uh, uh, you know this was an issue that was really just overlooked and it was it was really never clearly articulated on mass but now people are waking up to it especially in the midst of the pandemic and mm-hmm. i actually think that there may be a probability that there's some type of fix on the horizon to re- finally address this where we say look the company's responsibility primarily is to the employee if the company offers the employee affordable coverage the employee can't go to healthcare.gov and get a subsidy or to the state exchange and get a subsidy but spouse and kids can go to healthcare.gov and get a subsidy and, and receive some type of subsidized coverage. And it seems like a, 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 a fairly reasonable ask uh, to address. Yeah. You know, and, and some of the, uh, sorry, some of the um, employers who did become a little bit savvy to this, um, you know, some of the larger employers, they went so far as to at least exclude spouses from coverage so that they could go to the exchange. Now, under the, the ACA, you can't exclude dependent children because that offer has to be to the employee and dependent children, but not to the spouse. So some of these smarter employers said, Hmm, we have people that could be helped more than I can help them on a subsidy basis that are spouses if they go to the exchange. So we're going to exclude spouses on our plan. Now, that doesn't work in the small group market where you're, the policies are already written and you have to offer to, you know, to spouses or things like that. But it's interesting. And the other thing that I think gets mixed up is the carrier rules in here. So each and for fully insured, each carrier has their own rules about how much employers need to contribute. And so typically they only require contribution on the employer side, like a 50% or more, they have some particular rules. And I think most the average employer sees that and thinks, oh, well, that's probably indicative or synonymous with what the ACA requires and not really understanding, Scott, to your point that there's more to this world about how it all works or consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about costs then, so this is family glitch place. I, is a, is, I am hearing talk of it. I'm hearing talk of potential in other bills. So I think this is one place that we can affect change. What about some other cost areas? Yeah, a major, a major uh, cost driver that, that we, that we feel needs to be addressed is, is freeing up, um, the manner in which data is accessible to healthcare consumers. So a major push in down in DC has been around transparency. And at this stage right now, what, what we're trying to do from a lobbying perspective is really try to develop relationships with the Biden administration to be involved in the regulatory process when it comes time to implement 
um, transparency provisions that were passed during the Trump administration. So just to give a little bit of context, um, the Trump administration signed into law that high level will require hospitals, providers, and uh, health plans to publish negotiated rates, to publish what the discrete cost of a given service is so that it's shoppable to the average consumer. Um, now that statute is in the regulatory phrase, I'm sorry, the regulatory phase. And what we want to, what we're trying to do is be involved in trying to deliver insight into how um, that data can be best utilized by our, our clients, the end user consumer, whether it's an employer or an individual. Because the difficulty with, with being a healthcare consumer is cost is, it, naked cost tells a very small part of the story. Um, oftentimes, naked cost is not indicative of what the total cost would be over an entire arc of care. So for instance, if, I, if I'm looking at physician A and the cost for physician A to give me a knee replacement, let's just say it's 10 grand, and physician B is 20 grand, you might be inclined to say, man, I want to go with physician A who's 10 grand because physician A is less expensive. But a real consumer would want to know what's the outcome, what's the infection rate. You know, if I pay 10 grand, is there a chance I'm going to be in the hospital down the road uh, with some type of complication? Um, whereas if I pay 20 grand, do I actually save money because it's, it's, it's a better service? Actually, what you tend to find is the less expensive service actually achieves better outcomes or at least benchmark outcomes because of efficiencies. But we need to make that data usable. Um, just publishing the data and putting it out there will be, we, we fear will be overwhelming. So one of the major cost initiatives that we're heavily involved with down in DC is really establishing relationships to be involved with that transparency regulatory process so that, that when that data becomes available and is made available to our clients and your employees, uh, that, that it will be usable. So the, the power of that data gives us a lot of exciting opportunities at One Digital to figure out ways to really deliver cost savings to our clients by, by driving utilization toward top performers that achieve the best outcomes at the right price. Um, uh, but we need a regulatory framework that's going to make that possible for us. So that's a relatively large cost savings initiative that we're, that we're involved with and, and pretty excited about. Yeah, we heard from we heard from Senator Susan Collins too. She talked a lot about her actions and her role within transparency. I think she was the one who co-sponsored the Price Transparency Act, and then she had mentioned also that some states actually do kind of have these transparency tools. I think Maine has one, um, but the issue that they have right now is just how to get the word out. How do you get consumers to actually go out and access this and know effectively how to use it? Um, and I think that she also touched touched on future legislation, much of what you just discussed, Scott, kind of like. Like, how do you provide transparency on medical errors? Or do you know if the providers had any disciplinary actions? What's going on at the hospital? Do they have a lot of common errors, wrong procedures that they're performing? Really kind of getting more to the heart of the quality as well as price. Yeah, and, and, and it really, I, I, for those of you who are listening, Senator Collins gave a great talk at our Capitol Conference this year. She, she really um, established her credibility as being a senator who understands what we do. Um, and, and, you know, uh, she, she really had some great insight into, into transparency and what we're trying to accomplish. But the overarching theme is, is, is just think about it. It's one thing to know the cost, but if you're seeing a cardiologist and you're not a physician and that cardiologist tells you, you got to have surgery or, or you're going to die, 
who is it really that easy for a lay individual to cross-examine that physician to figure out well is this guy does this does this physician really know what they're talking about you know i actually read all the medical literature and i'm able to, <laughs> to evaluate that's just not the way it goes when you know in order for the patient physician relationship to work there has to be a modicum of trust and it is very challenging for the average individual to cross-examine and truly evaluate the effectiveness of a given physician. So what we want, what the gold standard would be is to provide that information in a digestible format that's easy to navigate. And Senator Collins was all over that. I mean, that was her point was we want to bring all, bring all this information so that a consumer can actually look at it and make a decision like we do when we buy a product off of Amazon, right? Like we, we we're able to, to, to do a lot of research into a consumer good and have a pretty decent sense of what the reviews are and you know, what yeah. the sat- overall satisfaction is where that in healthcare right now is not terribly easy to do. No, and I think that's right. I mean, uh, it's it's way different when you're choosing a potential life-threatening service over, you know, buying the the next, you know, my next household shopping product from Amazon. I mean, those are whole different weighty decisions that you have to make and what are the components that you need to make them. But you're right, that stuff's not readily available. And the average person is not going to say, I know more than my doctor. In fact, I think that's probably why we're at many of the places that we're at here, because we just believe anything they tell us and whether we should or not. I mean, there's no, there's no checks and balances. In, with, Sam, with, you, you've probably had this experience before with the intoxicated uncle at Thanksgiving t- lecturing you about the Constitution. You never took con, con law one or two. I did take you know, like, like, you know, it's a that. it's a similar type of experience, right? It's a similar type of experience where a lay individual comes up and starts lecturing you about the Constitution. You're yes. like, you didn't take constitutional law. Get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. But, but I, you know what? It is just like that, right? So um, uh, that's that's the other danger too. So I, you know, I don't want to understand i mean it's nice that you like your doctor but i i you have no credibility either so like having credible sources of information that actually lead you to make good decisions that's something else yeah Um, i think that you know this is ripe for innovation i see other vendors coming out and being able to process this data and then being able to make a product off of that vendors yes but there's humor but i agree some other service would be able to help them I don't, I don't disagree with that, but I, I will challenge that not everybody thinks this is a great innovation opportunity, <laughs> correct? So who are the hard. players in the industry who don't think that this is a great deal? Yeah, the unfortunate reality is that um, there are unscrup- unscrupulous actors yes. mm-hmm. out there that benefit from this relationship and this trust and there and the, the, the unfortunate reality is there are examples across the country of bad actors and individuals who are not acting in good faith more often than not it's it's just medicine is incredibly human it's mm-hmm. an incredibly human practice it, it, it's it's prone well, to human error practicing yeah there's only so many hours in the day to get to know a patient and to get to understand it and, and most of the most of the vast majority of physicians act in good faith, but they're yeah. limited by their human capabilities. Yes. And but this data gives us an exciting chance to start to weed through. Well, 
who's who's more superhuman than others you know who is who is the the physician that is practicing evidence-based medicine more often than not referring to centers of excellence and really having that insight and and to sam's point and annette's point we're already starting to see partners of one digital start to talk this track and really start to go down this road of evaluating it but now we have government action that potentially makes this data way more accessible. And it's exciting. It's an exciting time that I think ultimately benefits our clients. But I mean, that's why we got to get in there, you know, and that's why we're there to be the expert, to help guide them, to provide, you know, the knowledge that they may not have. Not everyone's going to be as educated as, you know, on this topic as Susan, Senator Susan Collins. So that's really why we are there. Yeah. And I think I didn't have any pushback to transparency from Congress. I think the biggest uh, transparency pushback are the people who are going to have to comply. You know, so <laughs> it's the health plans, it's the provider community, it's all it, it the took, how, how, how long for them to file lawsuits in that? How long, how long until the lawsuits were filed Instant after this? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, so you have like the laws passed and then you, as Scott mentioned, it goes to the regulatory bodies, then they issue a, you know, a notice of proposed rulemaking. And that's where you can go in and do the comments. And that's often where these other major groups will go in and write their comments, what has been drafted on these proposed rules. Yeah, and then they, you know, then not to mention the lawsuits about you can't tell us to do this, you know, which they <laughs> lost, by the way. So um, now they have to do it. So in t- starting in 2022, all this transparency starts to come into play over the next three years, beginning in 2022. Um, but there is some lift for people. Now there's going to be an expense to that. I think one of the interesting pieces on the expense, you know, what we don't want is more expense to go back into the system. Right. So um, one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting was this MLR trade-off. So the medical loss ratio where you have to spend so much on claims or healthcare expenditures, a certain percentage, 80% small group, 85% large group, um, or you have to pay the difference back to, if you don't, as a health plan, you have to pay the difference back to the participants. Right. So I thought that one of the interesting things they did was to say, hey, look, if you spend capital to come into compliance for this transparency, we're not going to hold that against you when it comes down to looking at your expenses of where from this medical loss ratio standpoint, we're not going to hold it against you, you know, and say you're not, you're not spending it on people. Annette, I think that this is a really great example, this transparency discussion, um, to give a sense of how complicated the American healthcare organism is. Um, You know, most individuals will will say, yeah, I'm for transparency. I want to know that data. But then the individuals who are oftentimes being targeted by that action, uh, who participate in the healthcare community and, and view themselves as being good actors within the healthcare community are now fighting against it because they view it as a threat to their paycheck. They view it as a threat to their livelihood. Um, there's a lot of not in my backyardism in American healthcare policy discussion. There's a lot of, I'm cool addressing everyone else, but don't look at me. Don't look at what we yeah. do. Don't look there. Yeah. And it's really complicated. So it's important to keep this in mind that in DC, there are there are many, many lobbying organizations that are involved in health policy in one way, shape, or form. And they're all trying to, to argue their case for why their perspective is right. And the answer, as is usually the case, lies somewhere in between all of them. The, the right answer is probably somewhere in between all of them. Um, but it gives, it, it gives a sense of how hard it is 
to do broad sweeping health policy reform in this country, soup to nuts overhauls, because it means that on some level, the government will be picking winners and losers. And when you pick, when you pick winners and losers, it's like, okay, you can pick that loser, but don't pick me as the loser, right? Not in my backyard, you know, pick someone else. Right. So um, this is a great example of where you see those interests who are threatened by that transparency coming out and immediately fighting it and immediately saying, I'm not on board with this um, and, and dumping money into those campaigns to be against it. But, you know, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's medical device, whether it's uh, 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 billing requirements or electronic record requirements, there's always going to be somebody who's against it. And that complicates how we have to how we have to move policy in D.C. You know, and that's, uh, you bring up a really important point. It's this one size fits all, which it doesn't. One size fits none most of the time. And, um, you know, each state is different. Uh, There's not the same players in each state. They don't have the same demographics in each state. Everybody is dealing with their different, um, their different populations. And so to create these broad sweeping uh, rules or laws there are going to be winners and losers. And that's what's really hard in, in, in fixing this whole thing. That's why it's, it's not been done and this, there's not this magic. Um, one of the other things that we did spend time talking about, talking about broad sweeping or one size fits all, is um, we spent some time on the public option. But, you know, President Biden wants to introduce a public option. It is something that is required under the Affordable Care Act that hasn't been exercised to date. Um, let's talk a little bit about our discussions on the public option. Sure. Yeah. So, so the public option um, right now nationwide is polling pretty high at, in the electorate. So the theory behind the public option is that the government would establish essentially a plan design that would be sold alongside private insurance policies to compete with those private insurance policies. The thought would be that the government would be able to negotiate more favorable rates with hospitals and providers um, that would force insurance carriers and private plans to drive their prices down. That's at least the theory. And so what, what has transpired is the public option has been proposed as kind of a reasonable a reasonable solution to achieve universal coverage when compared to something like Medicare for all, which would eliminate private insurance more or less altogether, or private market insurance altogether. The public option is seen as, as more of a reasonable approach to injecting competition into the marketplace. The challenge with that, though, is that anyone who has had conversations with hospital systems like we do when we work, especially with our larger self-funded clients and we're doing negotiations with providers and we have some that are going into direct contracting, they'll they'll all tell you it's not a negotiation when you negotiate with the federal government, right? The the federal government comes in and says, this is what we're going to pay you. And there was a study that was done in 2019 that showed that the, 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 the rate mechanism that would be used for a public option at a federal level would pay roughly 70% of Medicare to a provider. And we know that the private market pays, let's call it two to three times Medicare, give or take. So the private market pays two to three times Medicare. The public option 
conceivably would be paying half Medicare. So, so it, when, when you start to really think about what that would mean, if there was a, if there was an option plan out there that was paying half of Medicare reimbursement rates, one, it's a question to be, be seen what providers would actually participate and what providers would say, I would be willing to see a, a, a public option patient. And two, it's, it's to be seen to what extent that reduction in in, in public option reimbursements at 70% of Medicare just gets passed on to the private marketplace and to what extent does that set the 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 motion set in motion the the conveyor belt to Medicare for all yeah it's the balloon animal theory you make a balloon animal, you squeeze the little balloon at one end and the, all the air goes to the other end. That's exactly that cost shifting is exactly the, the piece to your point. So you have, you know, half of Medicare reimbursement providers aren't, aren't going to do that. What There's already a huge amount of cost shifting if they accept Medicare patients today at 100% of Medicare reimbursement that they shift to the commercial market, right, or to the private market patients that are non-Medicare. So now if anyone can get that, right, there's more costs being moved to the, the private side. And then do you even have a private side anymore? I mean, at some point it becomes cost prohibitive. So then we don't have competition. Um, I think the other thing is how many providers stay? Mm-hmm. I mean, can they make it? It depends in their area too. What if you're, they're the only hospital system? They are not going to, especially in rural areas, they have... Um, one hospital system, one set of physicians. They're all going to start taking the 70, you know, 50% of Medicare payout. They're not going to be able to produce the services that they produce. I mean, you're going to have a trade-off in care too. So I think those are some of the dangers. And then do you just end up with Medicare for all because it's so broken? Yeah, the, the, the biggest, I mean, the, the, the thing that I can't wrap my head around, and, and perhaps there's somebody listening to this who can help me, but, but uh, help me wrap my head around this, this variable, but I, I can't reconcile the fact that today where we sit, we're about 100,000 primary care physicians short of baby boomer demand for primary care. So baby boomers are retiring, um, they're entering that Medicare phase of life. Uh, a relationship with a primary care physician becomes very important as we age and as we as we move into our retirement years. And right now, where we sit today, we're about 100,000 primary care physicians short of current demand. If we to, to say, okay, well, we're going to adopt a reimbursement structure that's 70% of Medicare, and we're going to—that's going to be the reimbursement rate for a primary care physician for an office visit. I gotta, I gotta ask the question. I would have a really hard time evaluating the aggravation, the cost, the duration of the investment of going to medical school to enter primary care, because again, medical school is really expensive in this country. I mean, it's incredibly expensive to actually become a physician. It's incredibly aggravating to become a physician. Uh, uh, you know, it's years and years of practice, right? <laughs> And, 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 and then to get out, you have a ton of debt, you have a ton of, you have a ton of burden wow. hanging over you. Mm-hmm. Now, the retort I get often is, well, we'll just pay for medical school. Okay, well, medical school in this country is 15 to 20 to 30 times more expensive than other countries that have uh, some type of government payer system. To put it in perspective, to become a physician, a primary care physician in France costs thirty six hundred dollars. That's the that's the aggregate cost. In the United States, it's two hundred eighty thousand dollars. 
two hundred thousand dollars, right? So, so, so it's it, th- that cost differential. So then the answer is, well, then we'll just tell medical schools that we're going to pay them what we think we should pay them to train a primary care physician. And again, you get back to: Are medical schools going to agree to that? Are they going to are they going to allow their lobbying association to say, look, we're now going to charge seventy percent or sixty percent of what we used to charge? I haven't gotten a good answer to that. We have a huge issue with 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 primary care right now. And, mm-hmm. uh, and and we're trying to innovate in that space, but mm-hmm. I, but does this just exacerbate that problem? Does it exacerbate that problem? We don't have care, right? And now we don't have the care we need. Um, yeah, and so you have less providers. Um, and yeah, just that always that answer. Well, we'll just we'll pay for it for everybody. But where does that money come from? So that's the trade off. You're right, Scott. When we first started this part of the conversation, public option. Man, that sounds great. I, I would love to pay less. That sounds really good. But what is the down the road trade off to it? And that's the piece. And that's what I, I keep, I kept asking most of the congressmen that I dealt with. That's such a great and noble thought, right? These are really good ideas. These are really trying to be helpful to people, but what, at what cost? Mm-hmm. Because they all have some sort of cost, whether it's a tangible cost or it's an outcome cost, like in, you know, lack of physicians or whatever, you know? So I think this is the, that, that balancing act that's so tough right now. So, yeah. So lots of good things. So as we kind of wrap up today's session, you know, what, where do you think, like based on the the conversations that you had with representatives um, what did they gravitate toward most in some of these conversations? Where do you think we might see some action coming forward? I mean, I think going back to the family glitch, I feel like the Biden administration talked about that early on trying to fix that. And I think, you know, it is something that has, you know, hopefully bipartisan bipartisan support that maybe something will get uh, fixed shortly soon. Good. Yeah. Scott, what about you? Yeah, I, you know, I, I like to I like to spend most of my time you know, ruminating on things like how do you get primary care in rural Montana, and, uh, and you know how do you how do you how do you overcome uh, access to care? And look, I think I think the innovation that that we see in telemedicine is going to be a really important piece, and virtual care generally is going to be a really important piece of the primary care puzzle going forward. Um, I, a lot of exciting opportunities. I actually think that we'll see some movement at the congressional level to expand access to things like um, uh, virtual care, using HSA funds for virtual care, um, potentially potentially um, expanding the ability to use HSA funds for things like direct primary care contracting, which I think is also a really exciting uh, emerging emerging trend in, 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 in our industry that essentially tries to recreate what bigger companies already do by giving smaller companies the ability to develop a relationship with a near site clinic to make to remove significant barriers to primary care. So exciting stuff there. My overarching concern though, and what I, I what I was picking up from a lot of the conversations I was having, especially with freshman lawmakers, new lawmakers, is they're all kind of waiting to see what happens with COVID. Um, COVID may force the hand of some of these discussions 
sooner than they want to have them. Uh, a discussion about a public option, a discussion about Medicare buy-in, a discussion about some broad sweeping piece of legislation that could be forced if we have you know, another year of, of economic downturn related to COVID. Fingers crossed, we're not gonna have that. We're moving in the right direction. Case counts look really good right now. Um, generally speaking across the country, things look like they're moving in the right direction. But I think that uh, from a broad sweeping policy perspective, I was getting a lot of non-commitment, <laughs> if I can put it that way. I was getting a lot of non-commitment from the perspective of we kind of have to wait to see what's what's going to happen with COVID to figure out what we need to do. Yeah, I think the other thing too is it, it just again reinforced how much education that we need to do, especially a lot of the freshmen. I spoke to some who don't understand even the the Affordable Care Act today. They don't understand what people have to do. They don't understand the responsibilities. So um, they're misinformed about a number of different things and how that affects the employers or how it affects employees. And so kind of putting all those pieces of the puzzle together for them, I think still will take time. And this is sort of the beauty of how uh, our democracy works in in that we have this constant fresh blood coming into Congress, but it's also the constant re-education that needs to happen of, you know, how things work and how things fit together. So I think... And that one last insight that might be useful for our our, our listeners is um, if you ever feared whether young people are represented in lawmaking, uh, don't have fear. Uh, In Congress... I think the average age of the staffer on on the House side is like 25 years old. Yeah. Um, so, and there's a lot of turnover because a lot of individuals go to work for uh, a lawmaker out of out of college. Usually, one of the DC colleges. They'll they'll go work on Capitol Hill for a couple years. Um, so every year we have to go through this process of educating. So if you have a new, if you have a 22 year old student uh, child who's graduating from college. Odds are they're probably not that fluent in health, nuanced health insurance matters. They've been on your plan. They've aged off. So we're constantly having to negotiate. So staffers on Capitol Hill are definitely definitely, um, representing the younger uh, generations. And it's a constant process of educating, re-educating, and making sure that they understand the issues. Incredibly smart, incredibly bright, incredibly talented. Um, and, and with our guidance, they can come up with some really good health policy. Great. Thank you so much, Scott and Samantha. And thanks for all your great insights and, and information. And thank you all for tuning in. Staying on top of compliance today can be the source of great concern and frustration. Our dedicated team of attorneys and experts look around the corner on your behalf and deliver the tools, education, and resources needed to help you plan for the future and protect your employees in business every day. You can access additional resources, employer advisory sessions, and podcasts on our website, onedigital.com. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time.